Well, good morning. So one of my favorite movies from the 1990s has to be the 1992 movie, Leap of Faith. Who's seen Leap of Faith? Anyone? A few of you. It's a Steve Martin movie. If you like Steve Martin, you'll probably like Leap of Faith. And the story revolves around this character called Jonas Nightingale. That's the character that Steve Martin plays. And he's a former petty criminal, a drug user, and he's a conman who's turned itinerant preacher and faith healer. Now, on the surface, Jonas appears to be a true man of faith, but in reality, he's just this slick religious huckster. Well, nevertheless, when his miracle and wonders convoy of trucks and buses is forced to pull into this town of Rustwater, Kansas for repairs, it's this rural town in the middle of a drought and desperate for rain, he has an encounter with true faith. One of the people he meets is a young man called Boyd who's been crippled after being hit by an 18-wheeler. And Boyd's hopeful that one day, just one day, he might be healed. But he's already been to a religious faith healer and nothing happened. The guy questioned the amount of faith he had. Well, when Jonas and Boyd meet for the first time, Jonas asks Boyd for a game of chess. And then Boyd asks him if he believes in miracles. And Jonas, this religious huckster, answers Never underestimate the power of belief, boy. With it, I've seen a mute sing hallelujah, and I've seen an old man get out of his wheelchair and dance. When you've got it, you've got the power of every ocean and every star right in your hand. Without it, you've got nothing. Everyone you meet is just another sinner, and everywhere you go is just another hell. Now, I won't spoil what happens in the end, but it's fascinating to watch the movie play out as Boyd's faith grows and as Jonas himself goes through a conversion of his own. We actually see two healings happen in the movie. And what I love is that even this con man understands that healing is often about so much more than just the physical. In our gospel story today, we'll see the same thing play out as Jesus himself encounters a man who cannot walk. He's crippled, if you will. And what we see is that when God's power is at work, healing happens in many different ways. So let's turn to our scripture reading for today. You can find it on the announcement sheet or on the insert. It's right there at the bottom if you want to follow along. It's from Luke. We're looking at Luke chapter 5. And we're continuing our series. In fact, it's the last week of this section of the series called Beginnings the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke. We're spending the entire year going through the Gospel of Luke because we want to have a clear vision of Jesus in 2020, who he is. And remember, Luke's writing his Gospel primarily for people who are not Jewish people. They're Gentile Christians who are living beyond Israel. He's writing it so that hopefully they'll see that their faith is well-founded. He has followed Peter around, and you see that in our reading for Acts today. He followed Peter, who was one of the witnesses of what Jesus did, and he wrote down all that he heard. He wants to give really accurate detail. There's a a real historicity to what he's doing because he's naming people and places and dates, none of which have been found to be untrue. But he also wants people to understand who Jesus is because he realizes that perhaps they don't really grasp the full magnitude of who this man was. And what we see in Luke and what we've seen already is that Jesus is a man on a mission. We saw that in our reading from Luke 4 a few weeks ago. Jesus stands up, doesn't he, in Nazareth. He stands up in the temple in front of his hometown crowd and he tells them what his mission is. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus' mission statement, if you will. And the interesting thing about it is he isn't going to do this on his own. As he starts to encounter other people, he starts to draw people in. We saw this last week, didn't we? And what he does is he takes sinners, people like you and me, and he transforms them into people that he can use for his kingdom's sake. Well, today we're going to encounter a story of two opposites. It's basically the opposites of power and paralysis, or power versus paralysis. Let's just say that. The context is that Jesus has just healed a leper. He's exhibited his healing power, and now he's back in Capernaum. We don't see that in Luke's gospel, but if you go and look at the, um, the equivalent story in Mark, we see that they're in Capernaum, down by Lake Galilee again. And he's teaching again. We read in 17a, on one of those days, as Jesus was teaching. He's teaching. And a couple of groups have come to check him out. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. These guys, they've come to check him out. And you might wonder, well, who are these Pharisees that he's talking about, that Luke's writing about, or these teachers of the law as they were known? Well, if you know anything about the Bible and if you ever went to Sunday school, you probably know them as the bad guys in the Bible, right? They're kind of the people that they come on stage and we all go, boo! I don't know if you, in England we have this thing called pantomime, okay, you may not have come across this, uh, but pantomime is this thing that happens every winter, I took my family to see some, they were a little bemused by it, and what happens is you get a story like, um, I don't know, Cinderella, and what we'll do is they'll, they'll really ham up this story, make it really funny, they'll dress up, you'll have men dressing up as women, they'll put on these performances in, in theaters across England at Christmas time. And there's these things you have to do. So when the bad person comes on the stage, everyone in the, in the audience has to say, look behind you, you're right? And so you look around and then the bad guy actually disappears and like, what are you on about? And they go, look behind you. Or when the bad guy comes on, everyone goes, boo, boo. It's a great audience participation. It, it's fun, trust me. It's a little weird, but it's fun. It's like the English, right? We're fun, but we're weird. <laughs> It's a bit like that when the Pharisees come on, on, onto the story, right? You're tempted to go, boo, look behind you, Jesus, watch out, boo. But we often don't know why, do we? Well, here's who they were. They were one of the four religious parties in Judaism, okay? We have the Sadducees, we have the Zealots, we have the Essenes, and then we have the Pharisees, who probably had the most uh, influence at the time. And they were largely a lay-led group, okay? They had a few priests uh, in their midst. And what they did was they would interpret the Mosaic law. So those first five books of the Bible, the Torah, they would take it and they would interpret it for other people. They were, if you like, the unofficial religious leaders of the day, approximately 6,000 of them in Israel, which isn't insignificant, but also isn't huge. And their aim, people say they're akin to a modern pressure group. So think of perhaps the moral majority of the 1980s led by Jerry Falwell. They were a bit like that. They were a group that was determined to influence the country for what they saw as the way the country should be living. Their aim was to purify Israel through intensified versions of the Jewish law. So they put up laws on top of laws, and they put boundaries around laws, so there was just no chance that you could possibly ever break a law. And they tend to miss the point. Daryl Bock writes this of them. Purity at the expense of serving people 
is not purity. It is isolationism and sin. Though the Pharisees have a piety, it is a destructive piety that ignores the needs of the people. So while their motives were good, they wanted to protect the Jewish faith. They often lived it out in ways that were not helpful to the Jewish people. Well, as these protectors of the Jewish faith, they got to come check out this guy, Jesus. They're wondering, what's he doing? They've heard the commotion. They've heard a lot about him. And they feel like as the protectors, we need to come and check out if he is legitimate. Now, what we see in the second half of verse 17 is the first moment of, or the first thing that is powerful. Look at what it says. And the power of the Lord was with him, that's Jesus, to heal. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. The Greek word for power is dunamis. We've talked about this before. It means, or from this this word, we get the word dynamite, right? Think of an explosive power. Jesus has this kind of power. And it's no coincidence, I think, that it follows verse 16. Now, you don't have this in your scripture, but let me read to you verse 16. Let's start with 15. But now, even more, the report about Jesus went abroad, and great crowds gathered to him and to be healed of their infirmities but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus, right before this story, he's done a healing, he's done some powerful things. He goes to a desolate place and he prays. He spends time with his father. It's not a coincidence that that happens in the midst of all that's happening with Jesus. I'm reminded of the church billboard that says, seven days without prayer makes one week. You ever heard that? Seven days without prayer makes one week. You know, it's slightly cheesy, but I think it's true. When we live a life without prayer, we do not have power like Jesus. I looked up some other quotes on prayer, and C.H. Spurgeon called prayer the engine room of the church. Wonder why the church isn't moving? Perhaps it's not praying. Martin Luther said to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Mother Teresa said, God shapes the world by prayer. The more praying there is in the world, the better the world will be. The mightier the forces against evil. Catherine Kuhlman said, the greatest power that God has given to any individual is the power of prayer. John Piper, prayer causes things to happen that wouldn't happen if you didn't pray. F.B. Meyer, the greatest tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. And Edwin Harvey said, a day without prayer is a day without blessing, and a life without prayer is a life without power. Jesus has power because he prays and he spends time with his Father. And that same power is available to us. The question is, are we willing to be people of prayer? Well, in verses 18 and 19, we see the next powerful thing, and it is the power of friendship says, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. This man is powerless to encounter Jesus without these four men. We know there are four because, again, it's in Mark's gospel, but not Luke's. And he's powerless to do it without these men. Think about it. He's paralyzed. 
He may know Jesus is in town, but he might be a mile away. He might be a couple of miles away. He may even be right next door to where Jesus is, and yet still he's powerless because the crowds are there. There's no way he can get in. There's no way his cries for help can be heard. He might even be able to get up on the roof so he's closer. Even if he was lying on the roof, there's no way he can get in because there's a roof in the way. But these four friends because of their love for him and their desire to see him healed, are willing to take a chance and start tearing this roof apart and let him down into the midst of where Jesus is. You know, there's a lot we don't know about these guys, but what we do is do know is they know about Jesus and they want their friend to meet with him. And their love for this friend overcomes, overcomes some really daunting obstacles that are in their way. I wonder if you have such friends in your life? Do you have people who will take you to Jesus when you need him most? People who care enough to do that, even if it means they might risk losing a friendship, even if it means they might risk upsetting others, do you have friends who will take you to Jesus when you need him most in your life? And are you willing to be such a friend for someone in need? These guys took a big risk what they were doing, I'm sure, brought the ire of the homeowner, right? As their roof was torn apart. And perhaps there was a cost. I'm sure there was a time cost as they were forced to repair the roof afterwards, right? The guy gets up and walks out, but they don't say the friends walk out. I think they're there for good, right? They've got to stay there and repair the roof. Are you willing to be such a friend for someone in need? It's the power of friendship, isn't it? Well, verse 20, we now see the power of faith. And when Jesus saw their faith. Now, faith here means a visible expression of faith, okay? It's not just sort of a a belief, as we heard in that quote uh, earlier on from the movie. No, it's actually about an action. Their, Their faith is leading them to act, isn't it? And this is the kind of trust in God that catches Jesus' eye and touches God's heart. And notice also that it's their faith that moves him, not just his faith. We don't even know what kind of faith this guy has, all right? But he says that it's their faith that moves him. See, faith in Middle Eastern cultures is much more of a communal experience than we experience in the West. Here, we very much individualize faith to that, have you said a personal prayer of faith in Jesus? But there, there's this culture much more where it's about the family and the community having faith. And this is what's happening here. We've tended to personalize it even privatize our faith, if you will. But the faith of others is crucial for salvation right here. And I think of those who, when I read this, I think of those who prayed for me when I was far from the Lord. I think of those who helped me to encounter Jesus along the way. I was reminded of this as well. I was watching the movie, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I don't know if you've seen that one. And Mr. Rogers does this thing, and then I watched a documentary about him afterwards, where he would have people stop for 10 seconds, and it's a minute in the movie, which it seems really long, and he'd say, I want you just to think of the people who have helped make you the person you are now, people who've led you to this. And then he pauses, he says, you know, I'll keep an eye on the watch. And then there's this just silence. And you watch as people are clearly visibly moved as they think about those people in their lives who have led them to this place of faith or the place where they are today. Each one of us has people in our lives who have done that for us. Our faith is a result of their prayers. 
part of the reason at Holy Cross that we emphasize regular Sunday attendance being here on Sundays because we recognize that it takes a community, not just an individualized thing. And also we emphasize life groups, again, smaller communities where the faith of others, the faith of others can help us in our salvation and help us in our growth as well. Well, in the second half of the verse 21b, we see the power of forgiveness. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. You know, Jesus surprises everyone here, doesn't he, by forgiving the man's sins. You know, we're all expecting, well, he's going to say, get up and walk, right? You're healed. Well done. You're healed. Go home. But he knows the man's heart better than the man himself knows. I'm not sure that man was even hoping for forgiveness when he came there. But he knows the man's heart, and he knows what he needs. As Charles Erdman puts it, he says, he saw the yearning of the sufferer for healing, not only of his body, but his soul. You see, the healing we all need first and foremost is spiritual and not physical. It's spiritual. R.C. Sproul writes this, forgiveness is our greatest need. Disease, depression, sorrow, poverty, injustice, and all other ills are true needs. Ultimately, however, all these ills exist because sin has corrupted creation. Not all of our problems are caused by our specific sins, but all of them are due to the fact that we live in a fallen world and suffer from sin's corruption. If we are not saved from our sins, any fix to these problems is temporary and hell awaits us. In Psalm 32 today, we heard, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Our Kent Hughes said, the Lord can do anything he wants. He can heal any disease he pleases, but the greatest miracle The only one that is eternal is the forgiveness of sins. Jesus gives the man what he needs most. And he's able to do it because of the cross that he will endure not too long afterwards. Isaiah 53 is an often misquoted passage when it comes to healing. It says, by his stripes we are healed. And people claim it as if you just accept Jesus, you'll also be physically healed. But it doesn't mean that. What it means is that when Jesus was beaten for us, when he went to death on the cross and suffered pain and suffering, we were healed spiritually. Because of that, we can have forgiveness, the most important healing that any of us will ever experience. Well, in verse 21, we come across paralysis, not power. Verse 21, it's the only time in the story we really see this besides the man himself. And look at what it says right here. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, it's not just the man on the stretcher who's paralyzed. We see paralysis in the Pharisees themselves. R. Kent Hughes says, the real paralytics that day were the Pharisees and teachers of the law. In marked contrast to the four stretcher bearers, they were just sitting there. As religious leaders charged with the care of the people, they should have been directing traffic to Jesus. Or at least when the roof parted, they should have reached up to receive the poor cripple. But instead of love, they showed indifference. Instead of faith, they issued criticism. Both attitudes hinder faith and healing. Pharisees cannot accept that Jesus is who he's claiming to be. Only God can forgive sins, but this man doesn't fit their mold of what God should look like. 
And so they, they, they think he's not concerned about the things that they're concerned about. And so this must be blasphemy. It's an insult to God himself. And this is something we must be wary of ourselves when we see God at work in ways that we are not comfortable with. Often in the two ways we see today, when we see perhaps the power of healing in people's lives, and we're tempted to question and to doubt, or when we see someone forgiven that we feel, well, perhaps they shouldn't be forgiven by the God I worship. Be wary of doing that in our lives. Well, in verses 22 and 25, again, we see power. And it's the one that perhaps we most expect to talk about in this story. It's the power of healing. Jesus perceived their thoughts and he answered them. Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what had been lying on, uh, what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. To prove that he has authority to forgive sins, Jesus then heals this man. And the man gets up, doesn't he? He walks away praising God. Everyone can see it. Another captive has been set free, right? Jesus is fulfilling his mission. This man has been set free to live life to the full. And we see that this power in verse 26 has the power to build up faith in others. Notice that. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Interesting, isn't it? I wonder if the Pharisees were amazed by that. It says all, doesn't it? It does say all, right? It says all of them were filled with amazement. You know, you hope so. But as we'll see next week, the Pharisees are again trying to disclaim Jesus' claims about who he is, to prove him wrong. As we come to the end of the sermon, I just want to ask a few questions. I, I wonder, have you recognized your greatest need, which is forgiveness for sin, knowing that God can forgive any sin? Have you recognized that need? Or have you hardened your heart toward Jesus? Has paralysis set in? doesn't matter who you are of what you've done. God can forgive you. This is the good news of the gospel. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God forgives. Also, is my faith a private one, or am I willing to share it with others. Notice how this man, he gets up and he runs out there, and I think he's sharing it with everyone for the rest of his life because of what has happened. We have power at our disposal, the power of God himself, but are we willing to be people who are used by God? And then is my life a life of visible praise to God because of what he's done in me? Do others look at you and go, wow, that person has encountered the living Lord Jesus. Friends, this Jesus we encounter each week is powerful. He has the power to forgive. He has the power to restore us. He has the power to heal, and he has the power to cure us as well. But many of us live as if he's just about Sunday morning. That's all there is to this Jesus. I do my duty on Sunday morning, and it's such an impoverished way to live. There is so much more on offer for us. This week, will you live each day with him and in his 
power that is available to you. The church does not need, uh, or the world does not need churches filled with nice people. It just doesn't need it. It needs people who will proclaim the power of God through healing and through proclaiming the forgiveness of sins that is available. It's the gospel, right? As G.K. Chesterton once put it, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Friends, let's not live in paralysis, but let's live with the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come move in our hearts. Would you fill us to overflowing with that same power that was in work in Jesus? Would you firstly make us a people of prayer, willing to commit to persistent prayer, longing to see others coming to know you, Lord? Would you commit us to that? Would you enable us to do that? And then would you help us to go out from there in your power and in the place of you to be your witness to others, Lord God? Would you help us to meet others and help them to encounter you as we bring the healing that you offer and the forgiveness you offer as well? We pray us in Jesus' name. Amen.